0: All right, if we could start. We can start making our way back to our seats. All right. If you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 13. And we are going to be looking at verses 18 through 30. So Luke writes, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages. Teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem and someone asked him, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and taught in your streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we, we thank you for this time, God. We thank you uh, for for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to open it up as as a community, as a congregation, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to study it together, God. Um, God, we know that, uh, your Holy Spirit, um, works mightily through your word and that, um, God, it is the Holy Spirit who, uh, enables us to, to understand the scriptures rightly, to apply them to our lives in, in a correct fashion. God, who stirs us up and gives us, um, energy and passion um to to know and to believe um and to do the things that you have called us to do. And so we ask that you would do that today, God. Um, whatever it is that, that you are working um in each of our lives, God, we ask that you would use this to uh confirm that and and um God to encourage that to to draw us deeper into the things um that you would have for us. Uh, we know that we are incapable of, of understanding and, and applying these things rightly without your spirit. So we ask um, a double portion of that spirit here today. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. So, um, so if you ever look up a word on Google, right? You type in. So what I do when I need a definition for a word, I type in the word and then I put def, D-E-F, uh, right behind it. And, and it pops up. Usually there's a whole kind of, uh, dictionary format thing that pops up at the top of the Google search, right? And it'll give you the definition of the word origin or whatever. And there's usually a little drop down menu. And when you drop the drop down menu down, there's another thing that pops up there and it's a little graph. Um, some of you probably have noticed this or are familiar with it. It's a little graph that shows you the usage of a word over a period of time, right? And so if it's a word from sort of like, old english or something you'll notice how it shows the word was very popular in 1500 and then has dropped out of use over the centuries or if it's if it's a word that is a pop culture kind of word right you'll notice that nobody said it at all until 1968 or whatever and then all of a sudden it comes into the lexicon um so so i was looking and and one such word as tied to our service um or tied to our message is the word inclusivity all right Uh, Inclusivity is a word that has exploded um, in usage, um, particularly over the last, say, decade and even over the last few years. But it's a word that was almost non-existent um, uh, 50 years ago, um, certainly 100 years ago. I think if I read it right, the word is first noted as existing in the 1920s or something like that. it, that's the first time it is coined. But anyway, it goes like this, zero usage. I mean, on the graph, it's as low as it can get until you get to uh, the nineties or early two thousands and it starts going up or whatever. Um, we talk a lot in our culture about inclusivity and, and what that means and, and what levels of inclusivity should be included in, in, in inclusivity. Um, And and it just keeps on seeming to get more and more, um, there are more and more categories, right? Um, And any form of exclusivity seems to be something that is called out um, and is therefore anathema in our culture because of it. Well, this is a passage, I think, about inclusivity. But it's also a passage about exclusivity and about the relationship between those two things when it comes to the kingdom of God. And so I think we've got some wisdom here as to how all of these things are connected, and, and particularly what they mean for the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God an inclusive kingdom, or is it an exclusive kingdom? That's an important question for us to answer um, as we try to engage with friends and loved ones and those we know to be non-believers uh, in our communities, okay? Is it an inclusive community, or is it an exclusive community? Jesus starts out in verse 18 sort of in general asking a question. What is the kingdom of God like? What is this thing that we, that God is moving and, and it is progressing forward and is rolling through the centuries? What is this kingdom of God like? And he gives us two illustrations. First, he says in verse 19, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. And then second in verse 20, he says, again, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. So probably if you've got a study Bible, it would not be hard for you to look down and kind of get the illustrations of what he's talking about there. But in case you're, you're not familiar with the passage, I'll kind of share it. So one, um, the par- this parable is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, okay? I always feel like that has some sort of significance. That when we find a parable that is mentioned throughout all three, there's a particular emphasis on it. And, and both here and in Matthew, it is followed by that other parable, the, the, the parable of the, the leaven or the yeast. Now this is what we see when we look throughout Scripture. We kind of do a New Testament study of a mustard seed. Mustard seed is in the scriptures is is both a symbol of the kingdom um, in 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 this context, but it's also a a symbol for faith itself. Sometimes, so we know the story when when Jesus talks about if you have faith beside size of a mustard seed, you can you can move a mountain. Um, Here's here's what you probably need to know. This this is the picture of the illustration. So a mustard seed is is a, a super tiny little seed. It's only about a millimeter long, and it's just a it's a tiny little seed, and yet when it grows, we, we assume that he is talking about what's called the black mustard plant, which is common in, in the Middle Eastern world. Um, it can grow from this tiny little seed to be a significant size plant, 10, 12 feet tall, big enough that a bird can come and land on it and, and perch in it and things like that. Um, it's not just a weed. It's not something that will, if it was landed on, it would fall over. It's a substantial plant that that birds can come and and nest in. Okay. And so, so that is the first picture he gives us. And there's this second parable of the yeast or the leaven. And again, as, as we've talked about, even pretty recently, leaven is oftentimes a illustration for sin in the Bible, particularly the sin of pride. We've already seen a reference to the leaven of the Pharisees in, in recent weeks in, in the gospel of Luke. And so, so the Jews understood that as a, as a typical symbol, um, if you remember in the Jewish ceremony that surrounds Passover, you would have to remove all leaven from your house um, as you entered into the season of Passover. And that was a symbol, again, that, that leaven was a picture of sin and that it was an idea of you cleansing all of this stuff out of your house. So the deal is, is that while leaven is often an illustration for sin, that's not what it's talking about in this place. We're making a different um, analogy here. It's not pointing us towards sin, but it's pointing us towards the nature of, of leaven itself—the expansive and pervasive way that it grows and 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 moves out, and how that's connected to the kingdom. So here's the deal: both of these illustrations are pointing towards a common, similar concept, and that is the incredible and and unexpected—you might even say ironic—growth of the Christian faith in the kingdom of God. So from the outside looking in, an observer would think an obscure religious teacher from Nazareth, which is a pimple on the armpit of the Roman Empire, takes 12 ordinary men, not generals or philosophers or politicians, but fishermen and public servants, and within... Three centuries, it is the dominant worldview in the entire Western world, okay? That's a pretty incredible story, and it is illustrated by the leaven and the mustard seed. The reality is the kingdom has repeated that process over and over, starting small and then expanding into this thing that you would have never thought it could have possibly become. We see it all throughout church history. The kingdom has grown and expanded and then maybe recedes for a while and then multiplies back again. After the fall of the Roman Empire, we've shared talking about church history a number of times. After the fall of the Roman Empire and the barbarian invasion, Christian Western Europe was de-Christianized functionally. And yet, thanks to the re-evangelization efforts of of Monastic outposts in, in Ireland and, and Scotland and, and, um, Germany and different places. Suddenly Christianity came back again, right? It, it, it surged forward again when it looked like Christianity was over. It looked like Christianity had had its day in the sun and now it was over and something else would come and take its place. And yet that was not the case. Christianity rushed forward again, looked like it was defeated and came back. The story of Christianity in Africa in the 1900s is another incredible story of mustard seed to, to giant plant growth. Okay. In the year 1900, it's estimated that there were 10 million Christians on the continent of Africa. By the year 2000, there were 360 million. Uh, Christians on the continent of Africa. Again, when you look at sort of movements of history, when you talk to sociologists who are examining the way movements grow and stuff, 10 million to 360 million in a 100 years is mind-boggling, okay? It doesn't seem like there could ever be that situation, particularly given the whole way that the colonialism and the mess of those things engaged with Africa, you would think that as soon as circumstances were different, man, they would throw Christianity away um, with, with all that colonial stuff, and yet it was not the case. It stormed forward. Um, so we've made jokes. There are more Presbyterians in Ethiopia than there are in Scotland. There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England now, um, because Christianity has exploded on the continent of Africa. Christianity is not just this ragtag band Living in tiny little enclaves, just trying to hold on and not become extinct every generation, right? The Bible gives us a different picture, that it is this incredible, unexpected kind of growth that we see. And particularly if you were a Jew, you would have, you would have thought that the way God's kingdom worked, was that it was it was tightly bound around the Jewish people, that the kingdom of God was tightly connected to ethnic Israel. And yet in verse 29, it says, man, people will come from the east and west, the north and south. They will take their place at the feast of the kingdom of God, right? People are going to be coming from all over the world to be a part of this thing that is the kingdom of God. And so this is what we find. This is an incredible reality of Christianity. And don't ever lose sight of this in your as, as you're listening to the media and academia and the way Christianity is in, in the United States. Never forget that, by and large, every other world religion, every other world religion is confined to an ethnic national group, almost almost solely. So if you think about it, Hinduism is an Indian religion. Buddhism is an East Asian religion. Confucianism is a Japanese religion. Zoroastrianism is a Persian Persian religion. Judaism is a Jewish religion. Only Islam is fairly diverse. It has expanded and spread across the Middle Eastern world into Indo-Asia and into East Asia. But even then, it is nothing like Christianity. Christianity is not just large, the kingdom of God is not just large, but it is worldwide, multicultural, multiethnic, multiracial, multinational, multisocioeconomic. It is vast and expansive and inclusive and has reached all around the world, not to every single person yet. Right. That is part of the impetus for our concern with international missions. There are still people on the planet who have never heard the gospel. Languages where the Bible has never been translated. Pockets of the world where there are cultures that don't know anything about Christianity in general. But, man, it has expanded all over the place to people of, of all backgrounds all around the world. Again, it's debatably though I think probably the front-runner, the most dominant, influential worldview that has ever existed. And while it may be receding in sectors of the Western world, it is growing everywhere else. In fact, against all odds, it is growing everywhere else. Places like Iran, places like Afghanistan, places like China and India, in Africa, Christianity is growing. And over and over again, what happens? It begins small, inconspicuous, just like that seed. Doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem. And then, just like that cell of yeast, it begins to work its way through society and spread and grow. And even the reality is it takes over in many contexts. So here's something that commentators, a couple of commentators that I was reading this week pointed out. You know what is another commonality between yeast and and a mustard plant? They are not only pervasive, but they are invasive, okay? What I mean by that is once they get going, they are hard to root out. They're hard to stop that process. Once they get established, it's hard to get rid of them. And if you're not careful... They'll run wild on you. They will take over everything. I think I've shared a couple of times that the quote from, from Dr. Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, and he says, he makes the comment where he says, you know, people go about their lives and they drive past our churches and they look at those churches and they say, um, man, isn't that a, a pretty little church with nice little people talking about their nice little Christian things, and they have no idea that we are inside planning to conquer the world. Right? And there's, and that's the truth is that the Christian gospel goes forth. And again, we don't conquer the world. It conquers the world. I think it's sad and I'm guilty of it too of the defeatist attitude that we often have in, in the Christian West. It's, it's, uh, and here's your, your weekly token quote, right? It is, it is just like in the stories where they talk about this thing called the long retreat, where if you remember the scene from the, the Lord of the Rings movie, there's a scene where, uh, uh, Frodo and Sam are in the woods and they hear something, they sneak over and they look and they see this parade of, of elves who are heading towards the, the gray havens, which are this port to leave middle earth forever. And Sam makes a comment where he says, you know, I don't know why, but it makes me sad to see them go. Um, I think Christianity has taken that image sometimes and sort of said, yeah, man, that's us. Man, it's just, it's receding another couple of generations. There's not going to be any of us left. It's just getting worse and worse. And so I guess we'll just try to make the best of it while we can. And, and probably in a couple of generations, man, Christianity's going to be over. And the reality is, man, cheer up, folks. Okay? Like, that is not the future of the faith. It could be the future of the faith in localized areas, as it has been all throughout history. But it's collapsed before and risen back to prominence. It has entered into a stage of decline and then a stage of revival. That's the nice thing about having a faith that centers around resurrection. Okay, We are the comeback kings because we have a comeback. The kingdom of God is vibrant and dynamic, and it may explode at any minute, given our faithfulness and our prayer. But here's the deal. There's a paradoxical side to this too, right? Because all those things that I just said about the kingdom are totally true. It is expansive. It does grow and is going to encompass the entire world. But then the disciples, after Jesus says this, ask a very pointed question. And it's odd that they would ask that question right after Jesus had said these things because they say, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Because here's the deal. We've, as we've seen over the last few weeks and months, Jesus has made a lot of conflict, uh, comments that would conflict with what he has just said. Comments about how, man, a lot of people are going to reject. We should expect rejection. We should expect people not to receive the gospel, okay? Because that's just the way the message goes. And then here Jesus says, oh, yeah, but the kingdom is expansive. It's going to take over. It's going to grow like you wouldn't believe. And so they're like, so what is, which is it, Jesus? Is it that, are there going to be a lot of people who get saved? Because we're sure not seeing it right now. We don't feel like we're seeing it, right? Um, Even in their time. What's the deal? Jesus says, makes this comment that, that is similar to ones we find in other places in Scripture. So he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. He says a little more pointedly, I think maybe in Matthew chapter 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus, I think, is tempering our expectations on these things. That while the kingdom grows like a tree that will be big enough that all the birds of the world can perch in it, in another way, it is actually narrow. And there are many who attempt it, try to enter the kingdom, and yet somehow they miss it. So here's something that, that that does in terms of doctrine for us, right? That very idea, just Jesus presenting those things out. Number one, it prevents us believing something like universalism, okay? So if you're not familiar with that term, universalism, it can be used in kind of different ways and there are different nuances. But universalism in general is the belief that in, in Christian circles that Jesus' death has in some way saved everybody. And even those who aren't, don't receive Christ in this life, there's still a way in which his death and resurrection has made salvation um, not just available, but actual for everybody on the planet. That doesn't, and they would say that doesn't mean we shouldn't still go evangelize because we want people to be living their best, closest to God life right now. And so yeah, that would be better if we were all following Jesus on a daily basis. But even those who don't follow Jesus are going to be saved one day because that's how big Jesus' salvation is. What he has done for mankind is brought all of us into the kingdom. There's sort of a uh, so it keeps us from thinking that, right? G- when Jesus says, "Man, there's going to be a lot of people who miss the kingdom. They're going to think they have it, and then they're going to miss it. It's not going to, it's not going to be for them." So that stops us from believing in u- universalism. I think it also probably stops us from thinking something like what's what we would call classical postmillennialism. And again, you may say, "Well, Ash, I don't know anything about that. What is that?" Well, if if we, when we think about end times. Understandings, end times scenarios. One of them, probably the one that is least believed by people now, is post-millennialism. And post-millennialism basically said this, man, things are just getting better out there. Like everything's getting better, health is getting better, technology's getting better, people are getting more moral, society is getting more solid, people are coming to Jesus. You know what's gonna happen? As this thing just continues to snowball, kinda like that mustard seed, kinda like that yeast, we're just going to see it continue to take over until one day everybody's going to look up and everybody's just going to be so Christian and the world's going to be so great that Jesus is just going to be like, man, I might as well come on back, right? Because, because everybody's just like waiting for me to get there and everything's so perfect. And so that was a very popular view of the end times in the late 1800s. And then a couple of things happened. The Bolshevik revolution, um, World War I happened, um, the Spanish influenza happened, and all of a sudden the whole world was like, oh, it's not getting better. Um, in fact, it's getting worse. In fact, we're finding new and interesting ways to be brutally vicious to our fellow man, right? And so all of a sudden, about the year 1920, people start going, mm, maybe, maybe post-millennialism is not um, the way that these things are gonna work out. But Again, this passage should have, should I think, should have made us know that, right? It should have said, man, there's going to be a lot of people who don't believe, okay? This kingdom is going to grow and take over, and yet at the same time, there's going to be some way that we have to understand that people are going to miss it, that it isn't going to work out um, the the way that maybe we might hope it would. And here's what we find. Um, It is, is... there will be a lot of people who miss it, and, I, and I'm gonna, I think I'm coining a term, is because they are people who are kingdom adjacent. Okay? They are people who are, they think they're in the kingdom, but they're not really in the kingdom, they're just next to the kingdom. They'll be acting in such a way that they think they have entered the kingdom, but they won't. Jesus kinda, I think, illustrates that in this parable. So we have this parable that Jesus tells at the very end, after the, the, the mustard seed and after the um, after the leaven. It's another story of a man who's locked a door at night. Right? We just had one of those a couple of weeks ago, where the servants were on the inside waiting for their master to come home. the The, the story is flipped this time. It is the master who is at home now, and something like the servants who are outside who have come after the doors have already been locked verse 25 says once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door you will stand outside knocking and pleading sir open the door for us but he will answer i don't know you or where you come from and then you will say we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets but he will reply i don't know you or where you come from away from me all you evil doers so the people who are refused admittance are, are marked, you could say, by a proximity to the owner. They are an owner adjacent. They've eaten with him. He has taught amongst them in their streets, in their homes, in their businesses. They know him. They've seen him. Both pictures, I think, are illustrations of a kind of participation in the kingdom. Right, They're not people who are like completely away from the kingdom and have nothing to do with it. They're people who are near the kingdom, in in the midst of the kingdom, and yet are not a part of the kingdom. Because twice, the owner says, the problem is, I don't know you, and I don't know where you come from. The problem is they have been around the owner, Jesus, but they've never entered into relationship with the owner. So I was I was thinking, uh, as I was studying this week, I got a, a message on, on Facebook, uh, and somebody had added me to a gigantic group message, and it was my 25th high school reunion. And so I had been put in this group, and they were saying, hey, we're doing a Zoom to start planning this thing. It's going to be this fall. We're going to do this and this, and everybody should join on a Zoom, and you should be a part of the planning committee, okay? And this has happened to me before, but it happened again this time. I started scrolling down through the faces, and the names of the people who were responding on this Facebook thing. And here's what surprised me this time, and it surprises me every time. I look at those people who graduated with me in my class, and I go, I don't know who any of you people are. I don't remember you. I don't remember your face. I don't remember your name. In fact, I am 99% sure you didn't graduate with me. But they all say they did, and everybody else knows them and is talking to them. And I'm like, how is it that they're – I mean, literally, when I look at the list, I'm like, 75% of the people on here, I go, I have no idea who that person is. I've never heard of them. I don't recognize their face. Who are these people? I don't know. And, and, And there's this thing that happens in my head where I go, how is it possible that these people who I was apparently in class with who I walked through the halls with, who I went to football games with, who we walked the same stage at graduation, who we shared all these experiences for four years, and now I look at their names and faces and I go, I don't know who this person is. How can that be possible? And, and the answer is very simple, is I never knew most of these people. They were around me all the time, Again, we participated in the same community. We shared an era of our lives together, honestly. And from the outside, you would go, of course, these people must know each other very well and must all be friends because of all these things that they obviously shared together. Field trips and classes and football games and pep rallies. They must know each other very well. But the reality is, is I don't know any of these people. And I didn't know them in high school. They were just people who were adjacent to me. The Jewish people already had a tendency to understand salvation in terms of association. All right? The Jewish people were always kind of thinking in terms of saying, by my birth and ethnicity, I am part of the people of God. I participate in the festivals. I participate in the ceremonies involved in the kingdom of God. I am accepted by my right of association with these people. Jesus even affirms that to an extent. Like he says, hey man, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, they're going to be there. All these people who are your patriarchs, who you identify the heritage of of the Jewish faith and and people with, they're all going to be there. You're not wrong about a certain aspect of that. But then he comes to this, in Jewish eyes, horrific conclusion. People are going to be excluded, though, from the kingdom. People who thought they would have been included. People who have been around the whole time. And yet they end up being locked out because they didn't know the owner. They didn't know who Jesus was. Now here's the deal. That seems terribly narrow of Jesus. Terribly exclusive of Jesus. Terribly alienating of Jesus to kick people into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth just because I didn't really know you. So then the question is, so which is it? Which kingdom do we have? Is it this expansive kingdom that is going to encapsulate all peoples? Or is it this exclusive kingdom that centers around one person knowing you. So I was reading an article by Trevin Wax, and he 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 made this comment. He said, um, well, actually, I can't remember if it was Trevin that made this comment or not, but anyway, um, when we take a truth and we make a, a half-truth sort of the main truth to the exclusion of every other truth, then that truth becomes a lie. Does that make sense? Like when you take one thing And you say nothing else matters except this, and all the other things don't aren't true anymore. They don't matter. This is the only thing that matters. When we do that to the exclusion of all those other truths, we end up telling people a lie. And so, again, now now Trevor Wags. This is definitely his thought. (laughs) Um, He said, "Here's the here's the miraculous thing about the Christian faith, Um, the counterintuitive thing about its power, and it is that." Part of its power lies in the contradiction or the paradox of its inclusive-exclusive nature. Okay? The thing that makes Christianity powerful is the fact that it is both exclusive and inclusive. So here's, here's something that he points out. So the Roman in the Roman world was all about inclusivity, right? All about pluralism, right? You you, you could be a part of the Roman Empire. You just had to agree to not be exclusive. Everybody believed in this whole pantheon of gods, right? And you could come with a new god as long as you were willing to add that god to the pantheon. But you had to put them all in the same sandbox, right? So that everybody could play with them and that there was no inequality in that. That was the model of pluralistic Roman society. You say, well, Ash... The Jews didn't do that. The Jews were part of the Roman Empire, and they wouldn't cave like that. And there's a reason for that. You're right. The the Jews didn't cave, um, and the Romans didn't like that. But they kind of let it slide with the Jewish people. And you want to know why? Because the Jewish people were this tiny group of people who were ethnically exclusive and basically had decided that the only people who God knew and the only people he cared about and the only people he was going to save were their tiny little crew. And so you know what? Their exclusivity alienated them from everybody else. So the Romans kind of went, you know what those Jews, they're weirdos, right? They have these ideas that we don't like. Um, if those ideas were more out there, we would probably have to do something about them. But, you know, it's kind of like the way we see a cult, right? If there's like a bunch of dudes living down at the Branch Davidian compound and, you know, they got some weird ideas about marriage or whatever, we just sort of go, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with me. They're in their little compound. You just let them do them, right? They'll believe their things and we'll just leave them alone. And it, it's not a threat to anything else, okay? And so you could be exclusive, As long as you said, it only applies to me and mine in this tiny little circumstance. Otherwise, you needed to be inclusive and say, there is no absolute. There is no um, single way. You got to include all these ways. Except the cool thing is, is what? Christianity shows up and says, there is only one way, but it's for everybody. And the Roman Empire says, no, you can't do that. That's the thing that we will not accept. You can't say that there's only one way, even if you say it's for everybody. You either got to say there's one way and it's only for a couple of folk, or there's a million ways and whoever can believe whatever. But Christianity says, nope, there is one Jesus. He is the only name by which we can be saved. However, anybody can come. Doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your socioeconomic class. Jesus is for everybody. That message is altogether unique in the world. Incredibly inclusive. Pervasively inclusive. Taking over everything inclusive, like that yeast, like that mustard seed. People will come from East West, north, south, from the whole world, from all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations. They will come to Jesus Christ and be part of that. We will stand one day in eternity, and it won't just be a bunch of white people sitting around, right? It will be people from everywhere who are part of this. In fact, many of the heroes of the faith, just like it says at the end, what does it say? Many who are first will be last, and last will be first. First. There will be people sitting real close to Jesus on that day who you have never heard of and look very different from you. And you'll say, well, that's not John Calvin. I was sure that John Calvin was going to be sitting next to Jesus. Or that's not Martin Luther. No, it's some little grandma in Cambodia, right? Because the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. And they're going to come from all over the world. And yet, at the same time, there's only one narrow way We're going to read Pilgrim's Progress here in a couple of months. There is a narrow path, and there's a tiny little wicket gate at the end of that path. And that wicket gate is Jesus Christ. And if you don't enter through that gate, then you get in the wrong way. And if you get in the wrong way, we find in other places in the Scripture, you get kicked out of the party, even if you look like you're supposed to be there. Or with this case, you come to the gate, and you tried to get in a different way, and he says... You didn't come in by the right way. I don't know who you are, and I don't know where you came from. But you didn't come the way I told you to come. You didn't come through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is that narrow way, and it is incredibly narrow. And it's this bizarre combination of inclusivity and exclusivity that make Christianity dangerous to the Romans. It makes Christianity dangerous to the American government. It makes Christianity dangerous to the Iranian government and the Afghani Taliban and the Chinese Communist Party because it is bringing everybody under the rule of Jesus Christ, but only Jesus Christ. So again, I don't know exactly what the personal application of that is for us today. I don't know what that necessarily does in, in terms of our um, daily walking with Jesus Christ. But what I hope it does is it is it gives us hope, is it gives us a sense of the security of the plan of God in the world, of the way he is working things out. It gives us the courage to be able to say, I don't mind looking somebody in the face and saying, Jesus is the only way, but that he will welcome anybody to that only way. I don't mind saying that. It's sometimes hard. It's embarrassing. It's a little difficult. People don't respond to it well. Nobody in history has responded to that message well who didn't want to believe it. But for those who hear it and believe it, it's life and hope and beauty and the future and everything. So I'd say, and we'll be those weirdos, right? Um, we'll be the people that... The world looks to and says, I don't know how you can pretend that these two things can be on the same page. And the answer is, we get it. It's weird. Inclusive, exclusive. Both are true. You can't have one without the other. Um, That's the tension that we live in. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and um, ask him to use this in our lives. Father God, what a glorious truth it is that, um, God, that you have made a way for every person in the world to be saved through the narrow gate of of Jesus Christ. That if we will approach your kingdom on that narrow path and through that narrow gate, God, that we will be welcomed into your kingdom, uh, that we will share in the fellowship of your people um, that we will sit down um at the table of your children. God, that will be our state for eternity. But God, if we have only lived adjacent to your kingdom, if we have, if we have tried to be close to it and yet not known it or been known by it, God, if we have, if we have walked the walk and talked the talk and yet never entered into relationship with with your son, Jesus Christ. God, you are clear that uh, there's no other way that there is an absolute exclusion for those who do not know Jesus Christ. And that only by knowing Christ can we enter into that kingdom. Father A, help us to know that in our own lives. God, help us to be sure. Give us the assurance. Show us um, God, that we know Jesus Christ like we say we know Jesus Christ. And God, let these things straight, strengthen us as we take your word to, to friends and family who do not believe them, um, to a world that is, is angry at the Christian church and the Christian faith, um, who um, does not like a message of inclusive exclusivity or exclusive inclusivity, but can only see the world from one of those two perspectives. God help us to give help that to give us um, hope and and trust in your working um, and honesty to share Jesus Christ with those around us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. your praises Week hope you got tomorrow off. Um, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Um, but uh, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.